0: Hi, this is David Rothkopf, your host, and we are coming to you as we do every Thursday from New York City, New York, a studio here um, uh, provided to us courtesy of the Comedy Cellar, even though not much of what we talk about is terribly funny. Uh, But one of the good things about it is that it's across the street from NYU Law School, where we find Ryan Goodman on a regular basis of Just Security and also a professor at NYU Law School. And joining us on the phone today, we have Mimi Roca, who is a former federal prosecutor. You may have seen her on MSNBC, where she is a regular commentator. And she also teaches at Pace Law School, which is not that far from here. Welcome, Mimi.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me,
0: Dave. And welcome, Ryan. Now, uh, we do this ep- at our Thursday episodes. We always do live, and then they go on to the podcast um uh and of course we because we think so highly of both of you we've arranged to have news break within 5 minutes of going on the air <laughs> so we're all sitting here like reading twitter and and checking on our phones but i do want to start with it because i think it's an interesting case and then we'll move on to some of the other uh issues that uh, have been dominant in the news in the past week or so uh, let me start with you Ryan uh Uh, We've just found out that a a federal court in the Eastern District of Virginia has come back with, I think it's 17 or 18 counts against Julian Assange uh, for violation of the Espionage Act. Um, And this is significant in a couple of ways, and I solicit your comments on both, and then I'll go to Mimi for yours. One, of course, uh, has to do with— the instant debate that it strikes uh, or triggers on whether this is the beginning of a slippery slope where uh, journalists could be charged, legitimate journalists could be charged, for gathering information from the government or having a government official slip them information. Um, And that's a legitimate debate. Uh, And then, of course, another one feeds into the whole Trump-Russia case. Uh, because our, the President of the United States famously was on the record on television saying, "I love WikiLeaks." Um, in fact, he said that a few times and several members of his team uh, interacted with WikiLeaks. Uh, and uh, it now seems that the President's Department of Justice has determined that Julian Assange, who is also um, you know being accused of of, of rape in, in Sweden, uh uh is is not just you know bad guy but 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 it, but he's a spy and that and if you read the code the espionage act uh it requires that you you know gather information cause to be gathered information that is then used by another foreign government to damage the united states right so just what what are your initial reactions ryan
2: Yeah, so um, this is breaking news, so the caveat is just initial reactions. I do think that it raises a profound First Amendment consideration, which is how much do Julian Assange's activities that are indicted here overlap with what normal journalists do? And that might be that normal journalists work with sources and contacts over a period of time and do indeed encourage them by asking, is there anything new that you know? And, in fact, what they really want is uh, information that's classified um, or otherwise protected by the government. So the degree to which Julian Assange is encouraging sources to reveal that kind of information and journalists are as well, that's, I think, the key consideration, even if there might be other activities for which he is charged that fall well beyond what any normal journalist would ever uh, consider doing. And, um, and then I think that's, that's the line. I think that's the, more, the most important thing to look at. I do think that there are certain activities that Julian Assange has done that I wouldn't think any normal journalist would do. And in fact, WikiLeaks has proclaimed itself initially to be the people's first um, espionage agency, uh, which kind of overlaps with what uh, Mike Pompeo thought of them as well, um, as a kind of foreign intelligence agency, just a non-state actor. Um, and I think the other, you know, as a legal issue... Uh, ball that one would want to keep one's eye on is this is now an extradition proceeding and it's actually going to complicate the government's position to have charged him with espionage because uh, the United Kingdom, where he's currently housed, uh, does not allow for extraditing people for political offenses and espionage is a political offense. They could waive that if they wanted to, but I, I think that that would be very hard for them to do.
0: Interesting. Mamie, what are your reactions?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's surprising, right? Because the first indictment against Assange was seen so carefully crafted to avoid this issue. Um, and while prosecutors bring superseding indictments all the time, it, it is surprising that that first indictment, you know, the analysis was, oh, they've done it, they've charged Assange without raising these, you know, really I mean, they were on the fringes, but they really avoided as much as they could these First Amendment issues by charging him only with basically aiding and abetting the computer hacking through this um, conduct uh, with Chelsea Manning, where he uh, Assange agreed basically to you know try and crack a password, I guess, to, to get some of the information. So, in, in then in a very short time later, they bring these sort of you know bombshell charges that are. As Ryan said, just much more complicated. So just just an observation that that's sort of interesting that they did it in that way. I'm I'm trying to figure out what the logic or sort of pattern reasoning was for doing it that way. Um, in terms of these new charges themselves, I mean I, I have not uh, either re- yet read the indictment in any way, but just looking at the reporting, you know, DOJ seems to be putting out statements saying all the right things, right? They're saying. Not being charged just because he's a journalist. Assange was uh, warned about this by the State Department not to release the names, and he did. This isn't about passively. Um, I mean, I'm looking, you know, just at, in an article, some quotes from the uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, who I guess is making these statements. Um, so they're saying all the right things. The, the question is going to be in terms of what the actual proof is. And how it plays out, you know, will, I think at first glance, First Amendment, um, people who are protective of the First Amendment for good reason are going to say, whoa, this is way too close. But it's, it's, I think, a little too early to say either way. We've got to sort of look at how this plays out and what proof, what they emphasize in the charges against him.
0: Yeah, I do understand, Ryan, by the way, that, you know, why this would make a lot of journalists nervous. I remember... A number of occasions when I was in the government, but but I, but I'll give you one where a guy invited me to breakfast at the Four Seasons in Washington D.C. A lovely breakfast, and um, I was a I was a reporter for a very big newspaper, a Pulitzer Prize-winning big deal reporter, and uh, somebody I had known uh, uh, for a long time, and and they said, you know, hi, how are you? What do you want for breakfast? And then they said, you know, I know that you oversaw the creation of this big classified report Mm. on certain activities by certain foreign governments. Would you give me a copy? And I pushed pushed back from the table (laughs) and I said, no, that would be a felony. I'm not going to give you a copy. Thanks very much. Have a nice breakfast. And I left the breakfast because it was just, you know, outrageous. But this is very, very common behavior. And the behavior is explicitly what the Department of Justice said, you know, you know, is the sort of trigger in this, which is causing somebody to take something which is classified and give it to someone who's going to publish it. And then it could do damage to the United States.
2: Right. And, um. And that's why this would be so unprecedented to go after that third party, um, not the person who's working for the government and is then providing information uh, that they shouldn't, but rather the person who's acting in the role of a journalist. And the in soldier, this case, that,
0: that yeah. Chelsea Manning was the person, right? That's right. She was the one who, who for, because apparently she believed that uh, WikiLeaks was seeking this sort of thing and that there would therefore be an avenue for it. Right. She took the information and gave it to them.
2: Right. And in that particular case, when Assange maybe steps over a line that other journalists wouldn't, wouldn't, which is to advise on how to break into the system. And that might be that. That's the third rail. But that's what most journalists aren't doing. And the other, the rest of the activity might actually overlap with a lot of what journalists are doing all the time.
0: Right. Now, Mimi, the other side of this, you know, that, that I've seen a lot of sort of Twitter traffic on this and the the uh, and which i know according to the joe biden campaign is not america but but let's set that aside for a second um i one of the things you know is that this is a slippery slope but but it's more than one slippery slope because the other side of it is that a bad actor could steal some information and then put it up on the internet and say well i'm a publisher or you know i'm a journalist and therefore you can't touch me because the the self-designation of being a journalist is enough to permit otherwise impermissible behavior. Maybe. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, I think that, um, you know, there is a line somewhere, right, between what people who are protective, as we all should be, you know, of the First Amendment, um, would would even probably find acceptable in the prosecution. Like it did not hear much pushback in the um, when the first indictment came out, and so that, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of interesting, and in some ways the conduct isn't that different. It's just the framing of the charges is different. So I want to see sort of what conduct is it is it really is it different now that they're focusing on their statements seem to be saying no no we're still focused on. The fact that he did something not passive—he um, did something, as you say, that most journalists would not do. But I think also we have to look at this in the context, you know, and why this is sort of raising more alarm bells. You know, this is an administration who regularly calls the press the enemy of the people, and so even though yes, Trump said I love WikiLeaks, this is his Department of Justice that's bringing it, and people are totally, understandably, I think, even more nervous about the encroachment on First Amendment rights. So it's not, it, you know, I, while well, I realize Obama, the Obama administration decided not to do this, largely because of First Amendment concerns, in some ways, I don't think people would have had the same uh, reaction because we are living in a different time right now that's kind of frightening. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, definitely true, and uh, I, I don't want to dwell on this because there's a lot of other activity this week. But let me go one more time to you, Ryan, and 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 you know raise the 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 issue that you know we talk about these things in a legal context, but mm-hmm. of course they exist in the context of the real behavior of real people. If you're in the Trump administration, if you've seen a document that suggests wrongdoing, if you've seen behavior that suggests wrongdoing, and you're inclined to be a whistleblower, and the Department of Justice is prosecuting somebody for violating the Espionage Act, for participating in um, the gathering and leaking of information, Regard, you know, I mean, they don't get to call Ryan and Mimi and say, give me your opinion, Uh, or Elizabeth Warren, by the way, who the Washington Post seems to be outraged was, you know, actually making money as a lawyer while teaching law school. (laughs) Um, uh, but, but but they don't get to to do that. Instead, they'll do it. They'll say, I'm not doing this. <laughs> These guys are going to come after me hard. And so it could have a chilling effect regardless of legal precedent.
2: So I think that that's a serious and correct concern. Um, and it kind of dovetails a little bit with what Mimi had just said in a certain sense of like, if you're worrying about one slippery slope versus the other, well, with this administration that's what we've got and we might even have it for six years so the slippery slope in the other direction is very severe and serious and indeed there's so many ways in which this administration has tried to clamp down on any kind of whistleblowing so just this week um, Rex Tillerson goes and briefs Congress and uh, what does the president do but try to bash him the next morning Um, and in fact the chair of the committee the House Foreign Affairs Committee issued a statement right after Tillerson had left saying Let's look at the bigger picture. If there are other former or current US officials that want to talk to us, it is your First Amendment right to do so. There's no executive privilege on that, and if you've seen wrongdoing, we'll come you know come forward. And so this really is where the game is at. And I I agree that there are many people that would think this this administration is serious. They're they're willing to break the glass that the Obama administration wasn't. They're willing to go places that they weren't. And then of course the background is As Mimi had said as well, you know, the press is the enemy of the people, and they don't see the same lines of whistleblowers as actually performing a good public function uh, to prevent public corruption and things like that. So yeah.
0: Well, you know, Mimi, there's kind of Ryan brings up an interesting point, which is Tillerson's visit to the Hill, um, which we should note took place under strange amounts of secrecy. That he went in a back door of the (laughs) Capitol, nobody knew about it uh, beforehand. And presumably one of the reasons was to not either produce an outburst from the White House or or, or even more chillingly, you know, not to have the White House say uh, we're going to assert executive privilege here, too. He can't do that and get into a whole you know, other battle. Now, the president's response uh, also figures in this. He, he called. I think he, he asserted that the former CEO of Exxon was dumb as a rock, dumb as a rock. Um, uh, uh, which, you know, he considered to be a real slam. But having said that, there's a ton of people out there in the Republican Party who are afraid of crossing Trump because of his slams like this. And he, they, you know, I mean, you know, Justin Amash, you know, goes and makes his statement about Trump. And the next thing you know, Trump says, you know, he's a he's a loser. And and a day later, there is a primary challenger for justin amash you know so people you know sort of worried about their job security in this in you know environment i guess the, the, the the question there is a question at the end of this is when we evaluate and there are multiple slippery slopes in this particular case um some slopes are slipperier than others apparently
1: yeah, I mean, in the case that you are talking about for Rex Tillerson, or in the case of the, well, the I'm songs? just I'm just the talking.
0: Papers. I'm actually talking about the Trump administration more broadly. Is you know you uh, have yeah. you have to look yeah. at them and think they're going to use all the tools available to stop leaks, stop criticism, stop free speech, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, you know just one of the most terrifying aspects of this administration is. You know, from day one, there were sort of encroachments. There was this this um, dropping of norms and things I think we all took for granted. Like I remember back, you know, in uh, 2017, when Trump was early on, you know, calling our justice system a joke and, uh, you know, criticizing the FBI, uh, you know, pretty much from the get go Um, and. You know, we've become so numb to it, but it's it's really sort of all part of this pattern, as you say, to silence critics of him and people who can do harm to him, even if they're not people who are coming out and criticizing him, right? I mean, that he just goes on the offensive if he thinks, well, law enforcement, you know, can do harm to him. He knows that. He knew that even before, you know, Mueller was appointed. Um, and so he goes on the offensive trying to discredit the entire FBI and Department of Justice and intelligence community because those are people who, uh, you know, pretty much deal in facts and, uh, and, and can hurt, therefore, hurt Trump because facts are usually not good for him. And so I think with Tillerson and the media, you know, yes, it's a very slippery slip. I think it, it is fascinating that. Tillerson you know, did, was able to do this, frankly, and, and you know, go in and give apparently testimony he felt he wanted to give um, without this whole battle about privilege that surely would have been invoked by the Trump administration because they do it, whether it's uh, warranted or legal or not, if nothing else, just to delay things. And so here you have an instance of one person from the administration who said, um, you know, I'm just going to go do this and I'm, I'm going to do it on my own. It's my right. And I'm not going to give them the opportunity to invoke that. So, you know, it does set an example for something that others could do. I'm not saying they will. But Brex Tillerson has done something that really, as far as I know, no other former administration official has done.
0: Yeah. Now, having said that, of course, WikiLeaks was working as a cutout for the Russian government. Uh, they were doing bad things uh that's pretty well established by the intelligence community um and we we shouldn't minimize those facts or the fact that they the Trump campaign chose to work with and encourage these bad actors even after having been warned about them uh during the campaign right i mean ryan it's a-
2: yes i guess that my only pause on that is I could have seen an indictment, actually, for WikiLeaks' involvement in the election as a foreign national, um, contributing to a campaign. And we I do worry, and I try to check myself, because I think of them as such a bad actor <laughs> and what they did in 2016. And one could have even supported what they did before being in that crowd. But once WikiLeaks is not the same WikiLeaks as it was in 2010, et cetera. And if he's being charged for what he did in a much earlier period, then it's... Hard in a certain sense of if they're a bad actor for what they did in 2016 but then we got to be very careful about what, what the actual charges are for. Um, I just want to circle back to this idea of uh, retribution and trying to silence critics um, because I I don't want to leave it in terms of some people in the government who hear us talking about it thinking that that's, you know, it's only the costs. I think that there's also a place here for um, people to rebuild their reputations uh, so McGahn um, has that opportunity now. He's on right on the edge. Is he going to, you know, kowtow to the White House out of concerns for, like, his law firm and things like that and therefore not testify when he could? He's, a, he's under nobody's compulsion uh, that he can't testify. He could do that. Or will he uh, abide by a congressional subpoena? And I think his reputation is on the line. And other people who have kowtowed to this administration, like Rod Rosenstein, have completely soiled their reputation in uh, many different networks. The legal community, as one example of that, and Tillerson's another good example. Um, in a sense of you know, he had hurt his reputation from some parts of his service, but uh, what he did this week uh, was very helpful.
0: All right. Well, let's mo- let's move on to a different set of issues. Um, a- akin to the kind of, you know, Trump calling uh, Tillerson as dumb as a rock and the kind of low level of his his attacks, you know, it's kind of amazing, right? I mean, we are fearful of the awesome power of the president, but when he <laughs> utilizes the awesome power, it often sounds like a, a like a, I mean, Petulant child, I yeah. think is unfair to petulant children. You know, you know, and he'll say, "Well, we don't want to have a do-over with the Mueller report," or, or uh, uh, you know, "I'm a very stable genius," which he asserted again today, um, uh, which was kind of astonishing. Uh, we th- an, an analog for this seems to be some of the legal cases that the administration is making, which are kind of just as dumb and simplistic. And so, Mimi, this week we've seen two examples where the administration has gone into a court and said we shouldn't have to comply with a subpoena for a dumb reason. And in both instances, the courts have essentially come back and said, no, that's a dumb reason that you, you don't get to make that case. It's wrong. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think, you know, of those decisions and, and what significance might they have? Or is this, you know, just these are all preliminaries because ultimately what we're waiting for is to see whether a Supreme Court that has Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on it is actually going to cut Trump's way or whether they're going to cut the way of the Constitution.
1: Yeah. And look, I mean, that's obviously the million dollar question. Um, you know, I tend to be, you know, some would call it naive. I'll, I'll call it a legal idealist a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I have faith that notwithstanding their politics and certainly with respect to Kavanaugh, you know, how much he's likely indebted, I don't mean financially, but uh, overall sort of politically to Trump for standing by him Um I still think that um, that these arguments that they're making, at least the two that we've seen so far, and they're, they're all sort of of the same vein, are so legally untenable that, you know, and Roberts, you know, if you remember, Justice Roberts, I forget what triggered it, but he came out with that statement once, um, you know, in the past year where he said, you know, we're not Obama judges or, you know, Democrat or Republican judges, we're, you know, were were justices for all or something like that. I'm totally paraphrasing, but he was trying to say, you know, and it it was rare for for him to come out and say something like that, but I, I thought it was a lot of people brushed it off as, oh yeah, sure. I thought it was quite meaningful that he at least was, was trying to maintain some semblance of non, uh, Politicalization of the court, and and so maybe between his influence, if that's sincere, and the sort of legal frivolousness of these arguments. I mean, I, I honestly think to a certain extent, some of these arguments that they want to make, for example, about the you know the tax law um, that says you, the IRS shall turn over, and and they're and Mnuchin's saying you know no, basically. I think that that's sanctionable. It's such a frivolous argument, but. Um, you know, I don't think they will be sanctioned, but I, I mean, I think a lot of courts and a lot of judges, was, as these two judges have recently, basically said the equivalent of, you know, you've got to be kidding me, and then wrote very eloquent opinions on why that is. And so I'm hoping that the combination of that means that the Supreme Court will do the right thing. And just one other point, which is I do think that in terms of the big picture, while it's slow, the fact that we've had these two um you know, victories or, or or depending on your side, you know, slap downs of the Trump legal arguments, it, it helps give people who uh, feel that this is just a lawless administration getting away with everything, it gives them a little bit of hope, you know, that, okay, maybe the rule of law means something still.
0: I, I take that personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, i I have those i I have those feelings too do you do you get some encouragement out of this, Ryan, or do you think these are kind of sweet generous
2: um, I get some encouragement out of them, but there are a couple reasons not to be that <laughs> encouraged by them uh, the thanks. First, yeah thanks sorry. Mimi and
0: Mimi and I were starting to feel good here for a second was... <laughs> we'll down now.
2: yeah, I mean the two reasons are one, as Mimi had said. These were such loser positions that the uh, Trump people were trying to put forward before the courts. So the fact that the courts rejected the Trump lawyers' positions doesn't say that much because they're just such bad arguments. It was not a close call. Um, and uh, that's why they you know in the, in the first opinion, there was not even a stay. Uh, instituted by the judge because they just there's no real chance that they will succeed on the merits so that 's one these are just clear cut cases, and then the second is uh that it's not about the merits it 's about running out the clock so that's the that's the game that the Trump people are involved in and uh you know a great example of this is trying to block. Don McGahn from testifying um, based on the fact that the executive branch has always taken a certain position that otherwise has been rejected in courts, it's going to take a long time to adjudicate that. So the one example we have is uh, former White House counsel, Harriet Myers. It was a year before the district court even issued an opinion after she had not appeared um, before Congress uh, when that was a very similar case as a former White House counsel. So I think that's the problem here, um, that it's it's they're playing a different kind of game, and unfortunately, our court system is not nimble enough necessarily to deal with that. And these private lawsuits with Trump's um, financial records are different in character than uh, these other cases that will come when they're trying to subpoena former U.S. officials or current U.S. officials or get documents that are supposedly uh, a provided executive privilege. That's one branch versus the other. I think that's going to be a lot slower.
0: Okay. Well. That was a good attempt at bringing us down a little <laughs> bit here, um, but let me let me see if I can pile on. Maybe you know, in the in the sense that we've we've heard on two cases um, that are pretty clear cut. There seem to be twenty or so instances so far of the administration stonewalling the Congress. Uh, there are several levels of courts to go through before you get to an ultimate decision by the Supreme Court. The administration has shown a kind of willingness to play this out. Time is on their side. Uh, if they can drag many of these things out through the elections, um, then you know they might be able to remain in office. If they remain in office, then they will continue to have these tools to defend themselves with for another four years. Uh, beside that, it seems like the strategy of the Democratic majority in the House is to essentially let it play itself out through the courts and Nancy Pelosi has once again said we're not ready for impeachment and it's divisive by the way i found that a little bit disingenuous cuz in the same breath she said i think the president's nuts and there needs to be an impeachment and not an impeachment an intervention you know which is kind of divisive but in any <laughs> event the, the 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 you know the thrust of the of the de- the the this or the strategy of the so Pelosi approach seems to be, let's go slow and let it work through the courts. Well, if we do that, we're going to end up in the twenty twenty election, um, and uh, we're going to continue to give them the leverage that they've got from the White House, and that's 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 pretty disconcerting to me, um, you know, Mimi. Or 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 should we take some comfort from the fact that these both happen fairly quickly, and it's pretty straightforward and. And so there actually may be a bunch more victories in the near term.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I well, I, I will just add on the timing issue. I saw today that the Mazar, the appeal of the first, so the first district court decision that we're talking about, the one uh, with respect to Trump's accounting firm, where the judge refused to stay the subpoena um, or block the subpoena, the Uh, I I believe the Court of Appeals already issued a scheduling order for, um, you know, briefing and oral argument in July. Um, So, you know, Court of Appeals don't usually go that fast, but they seem to be moving quickly on that as well. Um, But, yes, uh, you know, I think the way I put it on TV last night was we're not this is not going to bring there's not going to be immediate gratification in the courts. Um, If what you're looking for is a flood of information to come out immediately about Trump, um, it's going to be months, but maybe not years. And, you know, November 2020 is soon, but not that soon. And some people say that Pelosi is sort of actually hoping that the, you know, information that at least seems like, because why else would Trump care so much about it coming out, would be damaging for him, comes out closer to the election, right? Because if it comes out now, knowing Trump, people just sort of say, talk about it for three days and then it passes. So, you know, maybe there is some, some timing that works out here. No one's going to pay attention to it now, but they will in, uh, you know, the, the early 2020, um, closer to the election. So it, it's not clear to me which way... And I mean, I'm not a political analyst, obviously, but I, I just think it's too early to say which way the timing, who, who, it, who it's going to end up advantaging. Um, I think Pelosi is definitely sending mixed signals. I, I have to admit, I sometimes am very just, you know, this is ridiculous. They need to start impeachment proceedings. And then I hear other arguments that make sense to me um, about why we shouldn't. And one thing I'll say about starting the impeachment inquiry that I think is worth emphasizing, no matter what your view is of it, Is it's not a magic wand. So it is even starting the inquiry would not solve a lot of the problems that we're talking about. You still have to subpoena people to get information. And while in other administrations, you would, you know, going back to our original point about norms, you know, an impeachment inquiry, who's going to just block all of that? This administration will. So while it it adds to the legal toolbox, certainly in front of a court, and courts would have even more reason to expedite it. And I think people who are on the fence, maybe on McGann, about complying might be more inclined to comply because now we're talking about impeachment. But it is, I think some people out there just have this misconception that once you call it you know, an impeachment inquiry, all of a sudden the administration is going to have to comply, and, and they won't. That's just not right.
0: Well, that's true, but you know one of the things Ryan is that the president of the United States, um, apparently, according to Mueller and 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 his investigation, um, committed a number of acts that now a thousand federal prosecutors have indicated uh, would lead to him being charged with felonies for obstruction. Um, has clearly violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Uh, has been uh, implicated in a decision that's already taken place in the Southern District of New York regarding a federal election violation with regarding the hush money um, uh, uh, payments to Stormy Daniels. Um, uh, and uh, it, we, we, we don't have further information on Cases associated with money laundering or cases associated with tax fraud, although some pretty good cases have been made in in, in the media, in the New York Times, particularly on the tax fraud issue. Um, uh, the president ha- is arguably um, not just violating norms, but raising concerns about his fitness for office on a fairly regular basis. Uh, and as you and I have discussed before, um, he has, uh, beginning during the campaign, but since, on a regular basis, placed our national security interests as second to his own personal interests, and actually served the objectives of foreign enemies uh, as part of a broader campaign that the Russians, for example, have undertaken. And by the way, that's continuing to work for them in the EU right now, for example. Um so, why am I relisting all these things? Well, you know, it would seem to me that any one of those things ought to get people kind of uncomfortable with the guy being president for a month or a year and a half or whatever, <laughs> you know. And and and, and yet the, the 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 response to that is, well, it might play into his hands politically. You know, Nancy Pelosi has said this. It would be very divisive. I know you're not a political advisor. Hmm. Um, but explain that to me. How does having impeachment, um, uh, inquiry, not not you know not, you know, a final vote or anything, but an mm. inquiry, to explore these things, and get at least some of the people on the record, and put it on television and make it so America can see it because they're not going to read the Mueller report, but they do watch TV, and and get it out there. How does that help the president? And wouldn't it, if it increases the chances that he loses because of the facts, mm. be in the interest of the country, quite apart from whether or not the Senate ultimately votes to convict?
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that, yeah, I, so there's a lot in support of what you're saying Um I just want to put two additional points onto it. So there's a great piece in the Washington Post by Walter Dellinger, former head of the Office of Legal Counsel, where he says, look at all of this fixation on the process of getting more out of that Mueller report, you know, squeezing it because we don't have the grand jury information and all the rest of these subpoena fights. It's already there. What's there is damning and explosive material. And kind of like you said, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but some people might think, based on that alone, do we really want this person to serve the rest of the week? in the White House, because this is so enormously awful. Um, and uh, it doesn't even need to meet the standard of a crime. It's just such an egregious abuse of power uh, as well. And and we have that there now. And if we also then – so that's his point, I think. It's just such a strong point. And, it, and in fact, it, um, it's that when you fight for more information, like on the Mueller report, it makes it – the signal that's sent to the American public is we need more like we can actually make up our minds without that additional um, amount, a quantum of information. And no, the answer is no. It's actually in there already. If people just understood it, and still a very small fraction of Americans have even read the report, what is more vivid than TV and people testifying. Um, And so I think that that's a very strong point. And then the other part of it is, you know, in a way, Mimi's right that maybe some of this information comes out a year from now. But at that point... People will say, but you knew so much of this already a year ago. Why didn't you act then? It can't be that bad. This is old news. And it will, the, the kind of coalition around what's just happened with the dropping of the Mueller report is lost by then. Um, so I think that's a, a real uh, kind of a cost. Um, so there are the, there are, those, I think, are the key elements. And I do think just the facts alone playing out on TV would be highly damaging to this president. Just the facts alone of what are in, what are in, what's in the Mueller report.
0: Well, you know, maybe you pointed out at the very beginning, facts are the kryptonite of Donald Trump. If, you're, if your entire approach um, is based on lies, facts undermines your approach. Um, but you know.
1: and David, can I just add, because I, sure. I know I, I raised the sort of skeptical because I, I do think it's important, to, especially the point about it not being a magic wand. But but overall, if I had to sort of you know come down one side or the other, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. And I think it would end up being more damaging and particularly because of the fact that, yes, what we already have from the Mueller report in the Mueller report. I mean, putting and there's a million things outside of nothing to do with the Mueller report. I mean, you know, kids in cages dying and things like that. But even if we just focus on the Mueller report, y- you don't need the rest of it. And, and so I do think you, know, you don't have to wait for the the unredacted portions. There's such damning information in there. And, and I and others, you know, keep trying to bring the focus back to those facts as opposed to the legal battle over getting the facts out. Um, and it's it's hard to do. I mean, the media just doesn't have the attention span for it, the mainstream media. Um, but, you know, I think there are a lot of people thinking about ways to do it. But the, the most effective way to do it would be through hearings, as long as you can get witnesses, though. And right now, that would be a problem, right? I mean, I don't think you could get Mueller. You could get McGahn. Uh, I, I, you know, I just don't know that any of the, the real fact with witnesses are, are that that's doable right
0: now? Well, that's a, it's a really really good point, you know, and 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 we've only got maybe five more minutes, but but you know, Ryan, remember when Jerry Nadler sent out eighty one subpoenas? Mm-hmm. What happened to those? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, I mean. Some of the people said no. Right. But presumably some of the people said yes. What's what, what's going what's going on with all that? And let me add on. We'll make this kind of the final question for both of you. But, you know, one other component that there's a lot of people who are frustrated by all this. I find myself getting comfort from following you guys on Twitter and watching you guys on TV and talking to you guys. But, but, you know, I find myself, the other thing I do is a lot of times is I'll do long lists of all these things that, that, that he's done wrong yeah. because I think people become numb to them, you know, and it's kind of mm-hmm. what I call the fog of Trump, you know, that if, if he does 100 things wrong, then no one of them is so bad or even you can, can't even focus on it long enough that it ends up tripping him up, even though if any one of these things had happened to Obama or Bush or somebody else, it would have it caught him up. And so people want some action. And I get the the question that is leading out of all of this is Nancy Pelosi is saying no action for now. I don't know that that sends a very good message to Trump. And I personally, I don't think it's the right decision, but she is. So where is possibility that action is going to come from? Well, the courts may rule on some of these things and that may lead to some new disclosures. That's interesting. That's in no case is that less than six months from now or, in all likelihood a year from now, or, you know, it's, it's going to take a while. There were in the Mueller report, 12 other cases that were supposedly brought someplace else. Um, New York state has its own avenues. Um, And, you know, one has to wonder how is the legal system going to work on this? And, and, you know, corollary question, um, uh, and again, it's one that I think both of you guys have addressed from one point or another, is does the Bill Bar Justice Department pursue these things? Does it pursue them fairly? Um, and uh, does it pursue them aggressively? Uh, or does it sort of run out the clock? And, 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 and we get none of the mechanisms for checks and balances, not the Congress, not the judiciary, et cetera, working to stop a pattern of egregiously bad behavior. So first to Ryan and then to Mimi.
2: Um, <clears throat> so uh, to end on a hopeful note, <laughs> I think there are three mechanisms that I can identify that might still be uh, workable on a short-term basis. Uh, one is we're in extreme time, so it requires extreme and unprecedented action. Uh, so can Congress utilize its inherent contempt powers to start imposing fines on individuals who don't abide by subpoenas. And Nadler, I noticed in the hearing where there was the empty chair from Don McGahn, says, you know, we're going to use all of our mechanisms that we have, but he doesn't say the word, inherent contempt. And I think he should have said that. And Adam Schiff has already said that they might impose $25,000 a day fines. And that could be important to an individual uh, out there in the world um, who has a credit rating and things like that. so they, will they start using fines or things like that, which do not have to be approved by a court? That's one. Second is there was some hope, a glimmer of hope this week with the House uh, Intelligence Committee being able to get concessions out of the DOJ with respect to giving them intelligence information that came out of the Mueller investigation. And it was because Adam Schiff was promising to hold the attorney general in contempt. And uh, then they, they've they seemed to have made concessions, we'll see, uh, because they said that they'll start revealing information to the House Intelligence Committee. So there's something there. And then the third one is the one that you had mentioned, David, which is New York. I would predict by before 2020, the election in 2020, New York State will bring an indictment against a sitting president because they're not bound by the Office of Legal Counsel. And it does seem as though if he's engaged in these kinds of financial crimes, uh, that is very likely to happen. We know that that investigation is happening in the New York State authorities. So I do think that that is another element that is at play, even though it's not at the federal level.
0: Mimi?
1: So I... I, I, I agree with everything Ryan said, not surprisingly. Um, and by the way, David, your threads where you write all of that out, they always get me, you know, then I'm, impeachment, now! Um, <laughs> because they're so well-written and they are actually inspiring. So keep I'm, writing those. I'm, 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 um, I'm
0: glad my neuroses are paying off for somebody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're perfect. They're really eloquently written. You explain it well. Um, you know, the New York State piece of it, um, it will be interesting to see. I, I think you're right. I think you know. Look, uh, the attorney general she she ran basically on a platform of I'm going to indict Trump, which, as a prosecutor, I actually don't love. No matter who the target is, I don't think prosecutors should sort of go out ahead of time and say what they're going to do um, for political purposes. But you know, there's obviously good reason, and I'm sure they have the facts. You know, that will that too though will be written off as, oh, you know, those crazy liberal New Yorkers, Um, this is old stuff, this was all stuff before he was president. I mean, I I think it depends on what the facts are, if they do bring an indictment. Um, I think, you know, with respect to his charity, on the one hand, uh, the Charitable Foundation, you know, that that was before he was president. On the other hand, I think people do find, you know, using money that is intended for charities for fraudulent purposes to be pretty shocking conduct. So maybe that is some part of an indictment um, that they could bring really rather quickly because they've already brought a civil suit uh, that would be interesting and and I think damaging. Um, I do have some hope. You know, today um, Stephen Koch was indicted by the Southern District. He was the banker who basically uh, lent money to Manafort in order to try and get a job in the administration. On the one hand, that's a you know pretty um, shocking but standard sort of public corruption case. Someone trying to buy a job in an administration. On the other hand, you know he now has pretty good incentive to cooperate. Did Manafort talk to anybody besides Gates in the administration about that? We don't know. So well, I, we actually I, do I, know I he
0: did. He did talk to Jared Kushner about it. Who and and said and Kushner responded apparently saying, "I'm on it."
1: Right. And so the question, though, is were there further conversations? I mean, we know that from, from the public evidence in the Manafort trial. Is there more to it? You know, is, is there possible criminal liability with respect to that? And I bring this up because I, I actually – learned today that that was not one of Mueller's referrals to the Southern District. The Southern District apparently, I was told this by a reporter, did this on their own, that they that this is what the Southern District told this reporter. And that's interesting. I mean, that means that the Southern District, while still very much you know within the Department of Justice and under the control of Bill Barr, is being its aggressive Um, I don't like the word aggressive because it has negative, but it is pursuing cases with zeal as it normally does against any person of any party. You know, Michael Avenatti and Stephen Mm -hmm. Cock in the same, you know, couple of days, right. A a huge Trump critic. And then someone who was close, you know, apparently working with uh, Trump's campaign manager. I mean, that, that is exactly how prosecution should be independent of the political considerations. And so that, that gives me hope. And and uh, Berman, Jeff Berman, the U.S. attorney, is actually recused from that case, which I don't know why. But that also gives me hope that he is following some recusal rules <laughs> unlike anybody else associated with this administration. So those things those things, give me some hope.
0: Well, see, folks, here we are at the end of our discussion. And um, Mimi and Ryan are very thoughtful observers on the system. And they think some parts of it may still be working. <laughs> oh. Uh, which, you know, I guess is as good as we can hope for See, today. There's a part
2: of the frog that hasn't boiled yet. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh,
0: exactly. But uh, having said that, given all that we face, uh, having perspectives like those of Ryan and those of Mimi uh, on uh, uh, via mechanisms like this, Deep State Radio and others, their regular, I saw you, Ryan, on on, on uh, Rachel Maddow's show the other night. I thought you did a good job. Mimi is always great on MSNBC. Um, I, you know, I I think this is necessary, and I think clearly there's many, 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 many steps to come. We hope you guys will come back and join us again here um, on Deep State Radio, um, where we're gonna keep following these things and trying to have uh, candid discussions, folks. If you want more. Of this, you can go to the DSRnetwork.com, where you can pick up other episodes of, 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 of the Deep State Radio podcast or unredacted by DSR, where this week uh, they, by the way, have done a two-part interview with Hillary Clinton, which will go up uh, tomorrow and the next day, uh, uh, or our other content. So please go to the DSR Network. And, you know, if you're there, you can. You could sign up and become a member. I mean, it's like not a real expensive, and you get like a mug or a T-shirt, and uh, and you keep America safe, you know. And so, you know, so like, you know, is that important to you? I don't know, but if you're there, why not? Um, In any event, thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, you, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back with you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.